0: Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Welcome back, listeners, and thank you for joining us once again, and we hope your mojo is keeping your hobby moving. But before we get started, Dave and I would encourage you to also keep up with our friends from down under it on the bench, Dave, Ian, and Julian. They have been keeping us all well-informed of the continuing Wingnut wing saga, and this last episode for those guys is no exception. Likewise, Stuart and Anthony at Scale Model Podcast had a real winner last episode with the always enjoyable Lincoln Wright in their guest spot. So, check those out, but for now, slide up to the bench and enjoy episode 14 of Plastic Model Mojo. Well, we're back again. Yeah, how are you doing this evening, Mike? I'm doing good. good. These summer. These summer weekends, though, are killing me.
1: Uh, I feel you, brother. I'm same way. Uh, the pool has been painted and filled, and uh, so all of the backyard and yard care stuff is just sucking up the weekends where I'd rather be in the model room modeling.
0: Well, it's going to rain eventually.
1: Yeah, well, well hope so, hopefully so. So uh, what what modeling fluid do you have in front of you tonight? Uh, I am
0: sipping a little bourbon by the name of Stonehammer. Uh. And it's new to me. It's, this might be my first and last time. So it might, I I might (laughs) double, I might double up. It's it's distilled by clear Springs distillery there in Louisville. Um, but as I'm finding out after getting into it, uh, they're kind of an OEM distiller. I don't think they have their own kind of brand. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. They make a lot of store brands, store labels. Gotcha. And, uh, it's a 90 proof. It's, it's got a hot finish for a 90. Um, it's kind of sweet, but it's equally spicy, almost like cinnamon on the back end. Um, particularly so if you if you take it neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little better on ice, but you know there's there's plenty of better pours in the price range of like twenty five to thirty thirty five dollars. So, not not getting high marks on this one. Gotcha. So not recommended, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and you, what do you got
1: going on? Well, Mike, tonight I'm drinking a beer called Mythos, M-Y-T-H-O-S. It's out of Greece. Um, I saw it at uh, the liquor store. Uh, You know, I kind of like to try beers from all different places. Um, It's pretty good. It's about 4.7% alcohol. It's brewed in Greece. Uh, It's not one of those brands where they brew it here in the U.S. and slap a a foreign label on it. Uh, It's it uses barley malt as the as the base, but uh, no, I like it. It's pretty darn good. It's something it it very much reminds you of, say, Czechvar.
0: Okay, yeah,
1: and and a very similar taste to Czechvar.
0: Well, if I ever have an opportunity, I'll give it a shot.
1: Yep. And uh, if we have any Greek listeners, you'll have to tell me if I'm drinking the Greek equivalent of sheep pee.
0: (laughs) Well, let's hope not.
1: Yeah, you and me both.
0: Well, we got some listener mail again. All right. Well, I'm going to start off with uh, Mark Box. He was having a conversation with us on Facebook. He's from uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin. And uh, Mr. Box sent us some serious fan mail.
1: I'm I'm glad to hear that. That sounds great.
0: Well, we got uh, some nice Wisconsin-themed beer glasses and a couple of bottle openers from Mark.
1: That's fantastic.
0: So uh, they they all came to me, so I'm going to have to get you yours at some point.
1: Hey Mike, this podcasting thing is really paying off. You were right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to have to give those a test drive real soon. So that that was a that was a nice surprise. I we appreciate that.
1: Yeah, very much so.
0: Uh Neil Neil Kegley's back with his geographical information. If you remember last episode, um, I didn't have that. He's from Pulaski, Virginia.
1: Nowhere and- it is.
0: Southwest Virginia. Now I guess it's Southwest Virginia. If you're a Virginian being from East Tennessee, my Southwest Virginia is a little more West than where he's from, but not too much. Yeah. He's about, uh, kind of between Bristol, which is, uh, the third of the tri cities area where I'm from and then Roanoke. So closer to Roanoke, but, uh, not, not too far away. He also has a current pet peeve. Oh, really? But, but we're going to hold that for later. Good idea another facebook conversation uh from uh stephen lee now stephen i i couldn't figure out where he was from uh maybe he'll notice back and tell us he had he had an interesting uh some interesting comments about a co- he's about our some of our past episode topics and i guess the big one was the uh the american model maker american kit manufacturers Conversation we had, and he he brought up something uh, interesting about the testers Italeri relationship, which was, I I can't substantiate this, but uh, he's saying that this relationship was forged because all those little square glass bottles that testers bottled their pain in, maybe the Model Master too as well, I don't know, were sourced in Italy. Hmm. And because. Those little glass bottles are really densely packed and really heavy. They ended up allegedly with a lot of vacant space in their containers because they couldn't stack them top to bottom, front to back with just glass bottles. Hmm. So through some method, they started importing uh, itulary so through some arrangement, I guess, uh, unkitted sprues, just sprues in bulk. You know, they were probably, you know, separated into what kit they were for obviously, sure. but no boxes, no instructions, no decals. And they filled the empty container space with this.
1: I love that story. I, I hope there's somebody out there who can confirm that for us because that's, that's an interesting, interesting take on things.
0: Certainly. And, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of businesses that kind of get started almost accidentally like that. It probably mm-hmm. wasn't an accident that he started, an import r- r- agreement with Italy, but uh, that was a. If it's true, that's a novel way to fill up your container space.
1: Well, as a matter of fact, I, I know a similar story. You, you know, Pacific Coast Models, which yeah, we discussed out in Cal- California, right? We talked about that, and the guy was an Italian car parts importer, and that's exactly what he did on his trips to Italy. Noticed there was all of this stuff available over there, but that wasn't available over here. Of course, this is all pre-internet. And so that's exactly what he did. He made arrangements to purchase these items and stuck them in his shipping containers full of Italian car parts.
0: Steven also t- talks about the AMT, Ertl, Star Trek licensing. Actually, um, any any of the licensing for that matter, I don't have the, the entire conversation in front of me, but he was... Working at a a hobby shop for a while, you know, years back and kind of had a visibility to some of this, but these struggling U S companies would get these licenses and then they end up being windfalls really for some of them and. It breathed a lot of new life into some of these American kit makers when they pick up, you know, star Wars or star Trek or some of these major franchise licenses, that kind of activity is probably what steered the entire U S market in that direction. You know, we talked about that quite a bit, that it seemed that most of the, the makers out there were, were into uh nostalgia and pop culture and a lot of licensed material.
1: Yeah. Well, it would make sense. And you know, a lot of times those, uh, man, those, uh, Media companies don't have any idea of the value of the brand of the of the show. You know, it's legendary that uh, George Lucas got rich when he agreed to do Star Wars. And the one thing he requested was all of the rights to all of the toys. And the studio, not thinking a thing about it, that it would have any real value, said, oh, sure, you do that. And that's where he made his initial fortune was from the toys and other related items after star Wars became a, a huge hit.
0: And finally from Steven, he also has a pet peeve.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: And, and we'll save that for later.
1: This is going to be a fun episode.
0: I hope so. Uh, finally from listener mail, Tony Jacobs. We've talked to Tony before uh in listener mail i think i know on facebook for sure but he's from gold coast uh, queensland area of uh, australia and he he sent a really nice picture of a among, uh, mark mark 5 mail in fact mm-hmm. the, the guys that on the bench were talking about it uh i guess he sent that to them as well and we've been talking kind of a back and forth a little bit regarding the the merits of scale and techniques and uh basil hayden's actually
1: <laughs> well that's always good
0: And, uh, actually he brought up two pet peeves. He, 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 yeah, he hints at one and then he just lays the other one out square on the table and they overlap a couple of mine. And until we get to our special segment, we're going to save that one for later too. So you can kind of see how this episode came about.
1: Yes. I I see where you got the idea. Um, (laughs) this is the point of the podcast to which I ask everybody who's listening, if you would take a moment when you're done, uh, using whatever podcast app you use to listen to us. If you would please go to Apple iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you're listening to us and rate the podcast, please give it five stars. Like I said, it's not an ego thing. It just, that causes the algorithms that those uh, programs use to push us up the visibility scale. So more people will get to hear us. And uh that's been happening lately as our numbers have gone up the last several episodes and so please keep doing it we thank you so mike uh what's your what's your benchtop look like uh you know we've as we
0: started in the intro bit there uh summer kind of taking its toll on me The there's just two anti-tank guns been sitting idle i got it uh I got it satin finished and just for no other reason really that I've, other than I've been working on other things in the limited time I've been at the bench the last week or so. So not much activity there. Now the, the Morris and Bofors combo, the little air fix kit. Uh, I've been working on the, uh, the tilt top, the canvas top. I've uh, been playing around with some pre-shading on that and getting, getting the airbrush fired up again. That, that that turned out pretty well. Then I've custom mixed a a particular brown leaning kind of olive color for the canvas parts. And I've been, uh, over spraying it and building up those layers to get, get the kind of look I want. And I'm I'm pretty pleased with it. Now there'll be a little more toning and stuff to it. Once, once it's all been airbrushed and the next step on it is I'm going to mask off all the, all the canvas, on the truck and uh, start painting the truck body, and I've also been kind of toying around with the base I'm going to make for it, but m- not too much along those lines yet. In addition to that one, the E16 Paul, the float plane I'm working on, I've got all the cockpit area painted and weathered and actually flat finished. I've not uh, joined the cock or the fuselage halves together yet. Now I got to confess here, I've not. Uh, Stayed true to my word. I've I've ended up ordering some seat belts for this thing.
1: <laughs> That's how it <sighs> starts, man.
0: Yeah, I know because I, I I like the uh, I mentioned last uh, episode that if I like the interior, I was going to try to do the the back part of the greenhouse open. So I figured I needed something in there.
1: Yeah.
0: So I I, I didn't get I I got the the uh, kamazakuri the paper ones. Yeah the Japanese ones right? and that, that should, that should be pretty straightforward. I think instead of dealing with some photo etch or something like that, I hope
1: <laughs> well, I can't wait to see it.
0: As soon as those show up, I'm going to get those on the seats and, and, uh, marry up the fuselage halves, uh, the catapult cable's still kind of eluding me, but I'm going to, going to have to bite the bullet and do the best I can with that. Or it's not going to go anywhere. Sure. Other than that, I haven't done much other modeling, so I'm just kind of been dabbling on the, kind of three things i've got on my bench right now i know you've made some progress
1: yes uh first and foremost uh i'm sure the listeners will be thrilled to hear uh the mig 17 is basically done uh it's been weathered uh the canopy masking's been removed the the gears on uh i've got a few little things like painting the formation lights um uh, things like that, you know, the the stuff that takes the last hour or so to wrap up. But uh, listeners won't have to listen to it or hear about it anymore because uh, it's going in the done pile. Uh, I'll post photos sometime in the coming week so you all get to see it. Um, that being done, uh, the bibber, which I had primed, but uh, – was holding off doing further painting till the uh, Mig had been uh, flat coated. Uh, is now back in the uh, back in the paint shop, so it's getting the little uh, flaws that the priming showed worked out. And then uh, I'm going to start doing some airbrushing, and finally uh, the. Um, M30, the 35th scale Russian field gun that I'm building. Uh, I've got the main breech piece and back half of the barrel together. Um, The kit did not fit as nice as I kind of hoped. One of my hopes in building uh, 35th scale armor was that I wasn't going to have to deal quite as much with seams and stuff like that. Uh, so far, that's not turned out to be the case uh, not the best fitting kit. Uh, I did however get the hussar uh, resin wheels and uh, those are very nice. I cleaned them up at the at the shop on Saturday and got those all together so those are actually ready to start priming and painting and uh, that's about it for where I am right now.
0: uh Oh it's Dave up by one. <laughs>
1: That's right. You better
0: get moving. Well, I'm going to have to get busy. Well, you've been buying much. What broke your wallet last few weeks?
1: Well, um, I haven't, uh, I got to say, I haven't been buying a lot of kits, uh, but I have picked up um, uh, uh, probably about 20 of the AK weathering pencils. Um one of the things I like to do on every model that I build, I want to try a new technique a new I want to try and stretch and learn new things and and do new stuff uh, when it comes to weathering, I am a huge coward uh, I don't I, I hesitate to weather a model as much as probably it should be. Um, but uh, these AK uh, Watercolor Weathering Pencils, uh, I watched a couple of YouTube videos on them. And uh, one of the nice things is they're very forgiving. Uh, ultimately, if you don't like what you've done, you can basically remove it. Um, so I went up to the local hobby shop, Brian's Scale Reproduction, and uh, uh, purchased a bunch of them. And I used them on the MIG. And I got to say, I'm liking it. Um. I think I still have a lot to learn with them, but my initial, um, efforts pleased me. And I think they're going to be a useful tool in the toolbox. So, uh, what's breaking your wallet?
0: I've been pretty good other than the, uh, the seat belts, And I've bought a few paints for the, for the aircraft as well. And, uh, my big thing is I, I still need to settle up with Brian at Scale Reproductions. I've, he has a kit for me on hold. And a couple other things.
1: If you want, I'll go by tomorrow and pick them up for you and settle up with him.
0: Well, I'd appreciate that. It's uh, the fields models uh, Firefly, Firefly Sherman Firefly. Uh,
1: he's got the stack. I've seen it sitting there. Uh, have you ever tried those AK pencils?
0: I've never tried them. Now you you got me curious. Now
1: uh, I will tell you my initial test. I'm very pleased with them.
0: You know, I I don't know that I've even watched any videos with the. Uh, with those being dem- demonstrated. So maybe I need to do that.
1: Well, I went on YouTube and i I found three good videos. In fact, I posted uh, a post on my blog where I linked to all three of the videos and uh, very helpful. Uh, they answered a lot of questions regarding how you use them. And there are several different ways to use them. And uh, I highly recommend taking a look at those YouTube videos. Well, I'll have to do that. So, did you buy anything else?
0: I'm trying to think. I don't believe I did, not yet. Now, that mini art T34 has got to be right around the corner because I see they they've they've announced a second one now.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I saw that too.
0: A checked T34. So that'll be popular, but hopefully the the World War II one is uh, soon to come around. Okay. And probably the thing I don't like about that kit kind of segues a little bit into our special segment. As uh, you may have gathered from uh, all the listener mail, this episode's special segment is uh, our modeling pet peeves. Now we've all got them. A lot of them are p- pretty common apparently. So we'll get into that. Well, since I kick off the uh, special segment, you're going to have to tell me yours first, your first one.
1: Well, well, Mike, uh you're eventually going to just have to stop me because uh, I kind of feel like George Costanza's father on Festivus with the airing of grievances because I have lots of modeling pet peeves and you're going to hear about them until you stop me. Um, Let me, let me start, start with probably one of my biggest. Um, I was at the, as you know, I was at the shop Saturday modeling with the guys in the club and I knew we were doing this segment so I asked them you know, hey guys what's what's your... and amazingly enough the first answer I got was my number one pet peeve as well Um, both uh, Tom Romanowski Balky and uh, uh, Stu Cox both mentioned this Uh, and that's bad instructions Uh, they were referring specifically to Dragon uh, my pet peeve on Instructions, my most recent experience is the Trumpeter M30 and the Airfix MiG-17, both of which have places where it is tough to tell where they want you to place things because the instructions are drawn poorly. And there's just no excuse for that. In this day and age, there is no excuse for a set of instructions not to clearly indicate where each piece should go
0: Dra- dragon gets panned a lot for their instructions in fact I uh, was watching one of uh Panzermeister 36's videos one of his recent ones he's been building a panzer three and uh, the, the f- w- during the assembly part of it he's like going through the instructions and showing how it tells you hey, you got to cut this off and glue this here instead and you end up with you know, half a box of unused parts because they've done so many very nuanced variations of their Stug 3s and Panzer 3s that the, their instruction sheets are just a mess.
1: Yeah, in fact, that's exactly what Stu was, was mentioning about Dragon is where they take all these different sprues and just like juggle them together and shove them in a box. And, you know, there's so many different versions of, of any particular kit that... uh it makes the the instructions even more confusing.
0: Well, from the from the armor perspective, I'm curious where they're going to end up going here in the next few years because, you know, they were king of the world there for a while, and and now they're they're trying to stay out of irrelevance. I think.
1: Yeah, have they kitted anything new that isn't just a a remix? Well, they've tried to re.
0: Kind of revamp some of their kits and simplify them. I, I'm not sure where they're going. They, they've not nothing's caught my eye, so I've not paid much attention to it. But you know, crap. There's so many new high end makers now that maybe they've lost half their designers. I
1: don't know. Yeah, I'm sure. All, I'm sure all of these new manufacturers are cutting into their market share. It's got to be really hurting them because I don't think price wise some of these new manufacturers are all that more expensive.
0: No, I agree. I don't think so. And a lot of them are better kits in general.
1: So what, uh, what's your pet peeve?
0: Well, I've got a lot, but I'll, I'll start with one. Um, my first one tonight is, uh, I'm going to kind of be a little vague here to not single any individual or whatever out, but, it's when a mainstream modeling magazine runs like a six page spread article by we'll say scale model rockstar. Yeah. And in this article scale model rockstar makes full use of scale model rockstar's own line of products. (laughs) Now I've got nothing against scale model rockstars. (laughs) I don't know them personally and they're certainly an inspiration to all of us, but, uh, um, And I can't pretend to know the true arrangement between them and the publication. However, for me, it just gives the impression that the scale model rockstar was paid by the magazine to advertise their own product line or the magazine and the scale model rockstar are in some sort of cabal.
1: Or alternatively, it's a paid advertisement by scale model rockstar. That's not been disclosed by the magazine as an advertisement.
0: It could be that. Um, Cause you know, I'd say if you're, if you if you're a business, you know, pay for every pay for advertising, like everyone else hawking their wares, <laughs> you know, or, or author and sell a book, which now a lot of these scale model rock stars have done. You don't see a lot of this here uh, recently, but uh, I don't know. Some of those articles have always just rubbed me the wrong way.
1: It does rub you the wrong way when somebody is, Obviously, hawking their own wares, particularly if it's a, a a particular item or material that many manufacturers have, and they're using their particular line. So we'll see.
0: That's just kind of one of my one of my pet peeves. But that's not really kit related. Um, what else you got?
1: Well, I'll give you one that's kit related. Um, aircraft manu- model manufacturers who do not put the clear parts in a separate package. Um, This came up recently. Uh, I got the Arma FM2 Wildcat. Beautiful kit. Fantastic. Super modern molding. Great decals. Everything. And they put the clear parts in the same bag with the, the plastic sprues. And... In this day and age, that's a no-no. Uh, it just leads to heartbreak. It leads to c- beautiful clear parts that have scratches or breaks or, or you know, stress fractures or any number of things. And all you've got to do is package it separately. Uh, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I am. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that ARMA in this day and age made that mistake. Well,
0: I used to send them some customer mail. Yeah, they, yeah, they might listen.
1: Yeah, I, you know they they might. You're right, but uh, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a pet peeve that in this day and age that that shouldn't happen. So how about how, you?
0: How is, how, well, how is that kit by the way? Oh,
1: that, that kit is gorgeous. I mean, there are a few people on the internet have reported getting some kits, uh, some sprues that. Had some sink marks, or, or which ARMA's apparently been very responsive to people who contacted them about uh, uh, issues with their particular uh, uh, kit that they received um, and are very open to sending out replacements and all. But uh, the, the kit is beautiful. I mean, just very modern molding, uh, state of the art. I can't wait to build one. Uh, this is ironically the most produced version of the Wildcat yet it's the one that really we have not had a mainstream manufacturer do up to this point. So um, I, I gotta say I'm pleased with it. I'm very happy with it and can't wait to can't wait to tie into one. So uh, give me another pet peeve.
0: Uh, this current trend in armor for full interiors.
1: Yeah. I think we've mentioned this one before.
0: Well, getting back to listener mail from Tony Jacobs, he kind of danced around this one a little bit and makes the key point that for the most part, you can't see it. Somebody just did a Panzer four. And I mentioned that in the past. That's got, uh, well, if you open the front, well, it's that, that's a, that's a model you could really open up and show a lot of the interior, but (laughs) I guess this, uh, this world war one tank he built had a full interior and there's only like a couple of doors in the sponsor to that thing and did leave open and God, you probably, if it's buttoned up, you can't see any of it. There's, there's no, there's no aperture big enough to see through, but, um, it's just generally it, you're looking at an increase, an increase in build time and paint time. There's a little bit of cost overhead with, with this too, I think. For a lot, because a lot of these kits, you know, are getting a little pricey. They're not terrible, but you're 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 getting a lot of extra stuff there. Yeah. Now going back into the 80s, models modelers were wishing for this kind of thing, um, and then we started getting them in resin. They wanted them in styrene. I'm not sure this is what we were wishing for, though. Not quite. <laughs> um, I think TriStar got it right with their. 38 T their Panzer 38 T line and AF- AFV club did as well with their, their Sturm Tiger. Uh, w- with those two kits, they had a separate injection molded interior kit you could buy for the base kit. So if you didn't want to build it hatches open with nobody in the hatches, you didn't have to have all this extra stuff or put a lot of time into building something you weren't going to see. Um, I think that 38 kits gone to hobby boss now. And I think the interior is included now. Maybe their price point kind of minimizes that downside, but, but generally speaking, I've said it before. If I had a option for a $50 kit with no interior and a $35 interior option for an $85 total, if I wanted the whole thing, um, I would rather have that than buy a $70 kit with a full interior because probably I'm not going to do the interior. So I'd rather buy the $50 kit than the $70 kit. That's kind of where I'm at with that.
1: That makes Um, perfect sense. I wonder if there's some, some financial incentive where they figure that they wouldn't sell enough if they made it separate, but by putting it in, they can charge enough more and enough people will bite the bullet and buy it anyway to, make it economically feasible to to market it that way as opposed to a separate interior well that's that's a good
0: point because with a with a separate module you buy later you've got you know more instructions another box and all the overhead with it right right so so yeah I mean, the tooling part of it's kind of the investment, but if you can amortize that over every kit you sell, you know, I, I would perfectly admit that maybe I'm making too much of it. Maybe, maybe I need to look at the price points more, and maybe it's not that big a deal to just not build it and chuck it all in a spares box when it's all said and done. Cause you know, back to dragon, some of these kits with full interiors, aren't that much more, if any more than some of their stinking bazillion part count kits with bad instructions. <laughs>
1: Not going to be getting any free kits from Dragon, that's for sure. All right, well, let me pick up my next one. And this one, it's modelers. Anytime a new kit is announced or CAD drawings are released or test shots are posted on the internet, there is invariably a slice of modelers who have to immediately declare the kit a complete crap pile, and just not worth your wasting your time on, etc., etc., etc. And it just—it's irritating as all get out. Now, when a kit comes out and people can actually get their hands on it and examine it and and do comparisons, if people want to point out things that they think are wrong or flaws or or whatever that's great you know it's a it's you know I'm more information people can decide whether whatever the flaw is or the problem is matters to them but there is some subsection of modellers and modellers as a group are a bunch of know-it-alls to begin with myself included i'm not but that it's like there's some urge to be the first to declare the kit fatally flawed. And it you can't do that based on shots of sprues or, or, God worse yet, CAD drawings. And I just wish people would stop for my own sanity. Please, if you're listening and you have that urge, Back away from the keyboard. Go get some modeling fluid. Don't do that. It's irritating.
0: I I think I've been pretty good about not doing that too much. Every time something new comes out, my position has always been, or not always, I've, I've probably done it a little bit, but is how is this incrementally better than what we had before it came along?
1: And that's a slightly different, and that's a slightly different issue where, you know, let's say this is the bazillionth ME109. That's a very valid question to ask and really doesn't depend on the kit itself in most cases. Um, Whereas what I'm talking about is more people without ever seeing actual plastic in their own hands manage (laughs) to, to look at a computer screen and declare the problems with the kit that either doesn't exist yet or exists only in test shots of which there are photographs of sprues. And that just, that just as you can tell, that drives me up a wall. What's your next one?
0: Gratuitous photo etch. (laughs) Amen, brother preach Or, or bad photo etch. Now, Stephen Lee from Lister mail mentioned this as well. Uh, Man, some things are meant, some things are rendered better in photo etch and some things are just better left alone. Uh, you know, the scale ship modelers, it goes without saying there's just so much on a, a ship three fifty scale or 700 scale that there's just really no other way to do it. Right. And the stuff, the stuff's a godsend, but for what, the kind of stuff we build aircraft, armor, whatnot, um, a lot of times they're just complicating assembly with rather dubious advantages. If, you know, if any at all, really um, a prime example from the armor genre would be uh, hobby bosses, Renault R 35. Now this kit's been outclassed by, you know, the recent Tamiya release, but right. if you go back and look at uh, a good place to go, look at it would be, um, Terry, terry ashley's review his perth military modeling site uh down in australia he's got a review of this thing and uh hobby boss put in these photo etched pieces that are inside the cross section of the of the bogey assemblies and they're they're hard to form and get them all the same and he ended up just throwing them out and replacing them with plastic which was probably what hobby boss should have done as well um uh, that's an example in in armor of just something that didn't need to be done. It just really made things terrible. It's really a hard build if you use the photo etched parts in, in the suspension. Uh, in addition to that, there's a lot of poor PE out there too. And I think my experience on the Trumpeter PT-76 I built uh, is a good example of that. It's, it's just, some of it's just poorly executed. You know, it's, it's really simplified, so you got to wonder if it would be if it would have been better just to do it in plastic. Uh, another issue I have a lot of times with the trumpeter is the brass they use is, is kind of hard. Even even if you anneal it over a flame and let it cool, uh, it still tends to break at the fold lines. And, you know, I had to beg bar and steal two or three photo sets from that PE or from that trumpeter PT 76 to get the, the light guard baskets to work.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And to be honest, they're not that great anyway. I
1: I knew we would eventually get to photo etch. The the particular area in photo etch that that drives me up a wall is photo etch that the, the photo etch manufacturer wants you to cut the plastic part off the kit and then do an origami fold of a whole bunch of very tiny brass to replace the item that you cut off. And when you put it on the kit, it is no real improvement over the plastic that was cut off at the photo etch replaces. And I, you know, I, and there are people who can do photo etch and do photo etch, really well, the people who can use and make the actual working tool clamps on 35th scale tanks, hey, more power to you, but it just, so much of it seems like an excuse to put stuff on an etched fret, like at some point they're really working for things to come up with.
0: Yeah, hence the gratuitous comment from uh, yes. Stephen Lee. <laughs> yeah. Now the, the the this excuse me this trumpeter kit I built uh, the screens for the engine deck intakes were really nice. It was just all the other stuff, and they were on separate frets.
1: Yeah. Oh, and photo etch has its uses. There's no question.
0: Oh yeah, I agree. You got another one?
1: Oh A gosh, home? I told you. You're going to have to cut me off at some point because I can literally go on all night on this.
0: Well, you got um, you have to keep us out of you have to keep us out of litigation too if we offend anybody of
1: here. Uh, the heck with it! This is opinion; it's protected by free speech. Um, let me give you one again, referencing back to the Airfix Mig 17 I just built. Airfix molded the front, the nose wheel of this kit, the front fork and wheel. As one piece. Now in the 1970s. That was acceptable. Okay. That's the way a lot of manufacturers. Did it in 1970. But for a 2020 model kit. For them. Not to mold. The pieces as two. As a fork and a wheel. That goes in it. It's just. Not acceptable because no matter how good a painter you are, and I think I did a pretty good job on this on the nose wheel of this MIG, it doesn't look a single molded piece, wheel and fork together, does not look as good and never will look as good as two separate pieces put together as the actual thing was engineered. And like I said, with the molding technology today, there's really no excuse for doing something that that lazy. Because that's all I can call it is lazy.
0: Well, you didn't buy two kits and carve the fork off one wheel and the wheel off another fork and, and <laughs> throw, throw the rest of the kit away? And
1: Oh, what I did buy was uh, the Edward Brassen set for the wheels for the Airfix MiG-17, which includes a new nose strut and a separate nose wheel. And every MiG-17 that I build, the Airfix kit from here on out will have one of those sets. But there's no reason that I should have to have done that. I love Airfix. Uh, A lot of the kits I've built lately have been Airfix kits. Sometimes... They just make me want to pound my head on the desk at some of the decisions they make in otherwise great kits. And that was one of them. So
0: how about you?
1: Come on. Here's some grievances.
0: Too many weathering products.
1: Oh God. Yes.
0: <laughs> so, so <laughs> this is back with, uh, Tony Jacobs again. This was his, his peeve. He flat called out, um, Tony, I'm going to quote you here. How many shades of Africa, Africa core belly button lint pigment do we really need?
1: As I think I said, the answer is three.
0: Well, and then I, I, I mentioned to him that a while back, someone had released a set of resin toilets and urinals in 35th scale. And then I joked on our club Facebook page that MIG would probably do a weathering set for it.
1: God. I don't even want to think about that. But here's the thing is not only are you going to get a weathering set, there will be three or four different colorings of fecal brown, depending on the diet of the inhabitants where this particular toy toilet was located.
0: Well, so you're going where we went. It didn't take long for this to devolve into some uh, junior high school potty humor, <laughs> but uh, we are kind of saturation. I mean, it, God grief. You watch some of these YouTubers and they're never using the same stuff twice. It seems like yeah, they must have a lot of stuff. Cause I look over at my, my selection and it's already looking a little scary <laughs> and I don't use it all.
1: Yeah. Well, the one that gets me is the 42 different types of earth, you know? And yes, I know the desert sand and, Red clay in Vietnam and Northern European brown dirt are different. But I swear we're going to get to the point where you're going to get a product where it says market garden earth for the Netherlands dirt in 1944. That it's that specific as a... (laughs) marketing ploy rather than an actual tonal variation in the color of the product.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I say that because I've used one of the the Vallejo Earth products and I've used others in the past and I've never used the color as anything more than a base, you know, just to have something that wasn't white or gray. Right. It always it always ends up getting a lot of heavy washes or even airbrushed a different color, almost every time.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So, you know it's it seems like every month there's four or five new things out there along this line. So, God yeah. help us.
1: Yeah, and I don't see any end to any time in the near future.
0: Well. I still contend that somebody's gonna, something's gonna fall by the wayside here before long. There's just not enough room for all this.
1: I, 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 I would think that the, that you would hit a saturation point, but who knows? I mean, they keep releasing it. Maybe they're, maybe it's much more profitable than we, than we know.
0: What next for you? I know you're not done.
1: Okay, I told you, I can go all night on this. This one is just a personal pet peeve and it's there are other people who may feel differently but I don't like paint in these stupid little squeeze bottles. Uh you know the the Vallejo uh AK the little dropper bottles uh it just I don't like it. I like, like AK, the glass jars, uh, or, you know, uh, uh, color coats, tint paint tins. Uh, it's not that there's something particularly wrong with it. Although I will say, I do think for some reason, paints in those plastic dropper bottles tend to dry out or become less useful, much more quickly than a paint in that's in a glass or or tin metal container. Um, I just don't like them. Uh, uh, The only thing I can say positive about any of them is the latest generation of AK where they put the little recess in the top where you can put a drop of the paint So that looking on the top of, when you're viewing all your bottles from the top, you can pick out the color by the drop of paint in the cap. That seemed to me to be a useful variation on an otherwise irritating storage method.
0: Well, I think I'm with you halfway there anyway.
1: Okay, that's fine. That's why it's a pet peeve.
0: For control and ease of dispense i like i like the dropper bottles Mm
1: -hmm.
0: now now most of my stuff's vallejo i've got a few andrea color i i don't like theirs because about two-thirds of those the tips split on them oh wow for whatever reason they i'm not even sure they're still marketing paint maybe they are
1: but anyway lord knows knows everybody else's marketing paint
0: there, there is some constituent in this Vallejo paint that eventually leaches through the polyethylene. Yes, because no, I've got some. I've got some Vallejo now that's probably pff, fifteen years old. It's been around longer than that, but I mm-hmm. uh, probably got these. May, well, crap. Yeah, it's probably about fifteen years old. And some of them, the the, the labels are sliding off because whatever's coming through the polyethylene is is making the glue later separate from the plastic. And I think you're right. I think in general they do dry up a little faster than a glass or metal can or tin or whatever.
1: You mentioned something there that uh, it's another pet peeve for me, a great segue into another pet peeve. Paint labels on bottles where the ink rubs off in your hand so that Eventually, you can't tell what the paint color is from, I mean, you can look at the bottle, but you can't tell the, the precise color because the printing on the label has rubbed off. And that happens a lot on those AK Vallejo, uh, Model Air, you know, uh, model color, uh, uh, bottle, you know, plastic uh, dropper bottles. Um, and that's another reason I, a related reason that I hate them.
0: But I, you know, I've got a lot of these. I even bought a a laboratory test tube shaker to shake these things up on.
1: I actually use one of those, uh, hobby paint shakers. And I, I'll tell you what, I swear by it. It really does. It, it, it's very, very useful for getting your paints well mixed. So that's an anti pet peeve. So,
0: and I'm just looking here. I'm grabbing a few of these because they're so close. And man, a lot of these have the labels starting to come off of them. Maybe I should just model more.
1: Well, yeah, we 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 both should do that. So, give me another pet peeve. Um,
0: this one comes from Neil Kegley. In addition to tell us, telling us he was from Pulaski, Virginia, he he brought up something i, I never really thought about. Um, m- modern kits most of them anyway, at least the ones he's building, they don't come with a reliable gear up option. True. Uh, You know, and I was thinking this would be pretty, you know, like most World War II fighters have a split, split door, right? They've got the part that's on the strut and they got the bottom that flips up over the bottom of half of the wheel. Once it enters the wing, Um, you could mold a module that was, the two doors joined together. So you didn't have the seam between the two halves. You just had a representation and then with a lip on it. So it just drops into the, the lower half of the wing down into the, the opening for the gear and it's flush or however it's supposed to fit. But you're, you're left instead with trying to fit two pieces into one hole that have no, no way to align themselves. So you got to create all that and create a way to keep it from falling all the way down in the, into the gear bay.
1: Yeah. There are a few kits out there who have done that um, uh, over time where you could have a wheels-up option, and they did exactly that. But that's fairly rare in the aircraft modeling world. And given the very minor cost, Tooling wise, of of giving you that because you've already got the two shapes anyway, uh, the the very minor cost of giving you that option, it would be well worth it for a manufacturer to do because there are more and more people who who want to do the the plane on a pole type display, and uh, if you want to do that and you don't have that in your kit it really does make life pretty, pretty miserable trying to get those uh, uh, gear gear doors covered.
0: Yeah. And you know, there's probably not a lot of folks doing it that way, but you know, he's one of them obviously. So that's why I brought it to our attention. Yeah. So maybe, maybe some manufacturers ought to listen up.
1: (laughs) I agree. I agree. Got another one. Yeah. Like I said, I can go all night on this. Um, Hasegawa. Decals. For some reason, and I don't know if it's environmental laws or what, Hasegawa's decals are, they don't use a somebody like Cartograph or Microscale or whatever to do their decals. They do them, I think, in Japan. And as a result, these decals are unbearably thick. Um, the amount of carrier film that, that's on a decal sheet uh, is thick, which means that it's harder to get the decal to lay down, harder to get it to conform into uh, panel lines, rivets, etc. cetera. Uh, it's harder to cover. Uh, they're just, you know, the, I'll be honest with you, any Hasegawa kit, the first thing I do is generally throw away the decals. And go get an aftermarket set they've been doing this ever since the seventies um, and in this day and age, there are so many really nice decal manufacturers out there there's just there's there's no excuse for it anymore. Hasegawa kits aren't cheap, and you know given what you're paying for there's there's no reason they can't go out and get a a good, a good decal maker to do their decals. They're not Japanese, though. Well, and, and I don't know how much of that is, you know, related to either Japanese import laws or Japanese environmental laws or whatever, but there's some reason for it, and I wish it would go away because, you know, I just hate opening up a box and just tossing the decals, but pretty much that's what I do.
0: That's kind of where I'm at with this Fujimi float plane. I don't know how these are going to be.
1: Yeah. Fujimis usually aren't as bad as Hasegawa, but again, they're not up to the quality of of many of the aftermarket manufacturers. You know, you may have to source some from third-party sheets.
0: Now, Tamiya gets panned for that, too.
1: Yes, uh, although Tamiya's, to me, are not quite as bad. They aren't, again, they aren't up to the quality of the European or American manufacturers, but I don't find Tamiya's quite as objectionable as I do Hasegawa's. But in just in general, not to, to um, single out a specific manufacturer, but... I just wish model companies would include new modern technology decals in their, in their kits. Cause it can be done. All right, Mike. So what's your next pet peeve? I may be out. Oh, you've got to be, come on.
0: You can complain better than that. I probably can, but ma- manufacturer wise, I, I don't know. I think that's, that's it for me. That's all I got.
1: I will give you one more. Let me just, uh, just to to give you an end. Um, And this is a kind of an engineering one. So, so you might like it. Uh, Thick sprue gates. That there are still manufacturers out there whose sprue gates and their attachment parts, A, are too thick. I mean, I, you know, We all know what a modern manufacturer can do if they're paying attention and and doing things correctly. So there's no excuse for sprue gates that are inordinately thick. It's just kind of of lazy, or maybe it's done to enable them to use less expensive, less quality plastic. I don't know. The other related... uh, Part of that is the location of the sprue attachment points. Um, uh, This is another thing that Tom Romanowski was talking about uh, uh, at the shop on Saturday, where a manufacturer will, you know, put the sprue gate attaching to the piece at, the worst possible place for you to have to clean up the sprue gate, where with a little more thought they could have placed it differently, still accomplish the injection molding, and put the sprue gate someplace where it's not going to show or it's not going to be as difficult to clean up, etc. And I feel like you know, some of this is, is nitpicky complaining because, again, I've said repeatedly we live in the golden age of modeling, and I'm happy to get new kits of of almost anything, but the technology is advancing, and I would love to see the manufacturers putting a little more effort into keeping up with some of the little things, not stuff that requires some super fancy equipment or technology, but just simple stop and think about what you're, what you're molding and where you're putting things and, and, and put a little more effort into it because uh, you know, that some of the things that takes the joy out of modeling is having to deal with things like that, especially when uh, you know, you shouldn't have to.
0: I'm not sure of the vintage of this float plane I'm building, but those Fujimi sprue gates are kind of thick on it, but it's, it's probably older than I think it is.
1: It's, I think, late 80s, early 90s, if I remember. I could look it up on Scalemates, but I think it's late 80s, early 90s. So the technology has, has gone two generations beyond that.
0: So f- f- for sprue gates, there's, there's a lot that, there's several reasons for that. Another, another thing that you didn't mention is, is you know that the tonnage of injection press they've got to run it on may may influence that, and if they are, if they're designing tooling for mold presses they've already got or their manufacturer already has, then that might explain some of that. But a lot of this misplacement could be easily fixed. Yes, like I I know. You guys were looking at the Tamiya, new Tamiya KV-1. Right. And w- one of the gripes is that uh, instead of putting uh, ejector tabs on the outboard of the track links to knock it out of the tooling, uh, you know, there's, they've they've hit it right. You know, probably, I've not seen the kit yet, but they're actually on the backside of the track link. So they're going right. to have to be dealt with. and. Some manufacturers will put those little tabs on the outside of those so you can get them out or so they don't have to mar the, the, the track link, but a little, little bit of a surprise from Tamiya, but, uh, I got to think a lot of the, a lot of the people fondling that kit are going to replace the tracks anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I took a look at it and man, it does look like, I like the KV one. I think it's an attractive vehicle. Uh, and you know there's all sorts of weathering and painting and markings and all you can do with it. So I predict that one will be a very popular kit.
0: I'm sure I'll get it.
1: <laughs> I have no doubt. <laughs> well, I think we've reached the end, Mike so uh, have we griped enough? I think we've griped enough. I, it's not that I couldn't gripe more because Lord knows so like I said it's it's the airing of grievances but I think we've griped enough that uh people are probably tired of hearing it. Although I would like to hear your all scrites. I know there's stuff that we didn't have time to mention that people find irritating. So I want to hear from you all what you all think is uh, a pet peeve or a gripe that we we didn't mention but we should have. Absolutely. So Mike, what's your shout out of the month?
0: None other than listener Mark Box, of course.
1: see you can be bribed into a shout out
0: i think so uh you're as bad as those
1: magazines you were talking about
0: probably except (laughs) i didn't get paid (laughs) he made some very favorable remarks about our little show here and uh hell he sent us some free stuff as a token of gratitude so he enjoys the show and appreciates what we're doing and you know, that's like I've said before, that sort of thing makes all this fun worthwhile and enjoyable and all that. So Mark, thank you for the, uh, the paraphernalia and glad to have you listening. Amen. Thank you. And what about you?
1: Well, um, the, my shout out for this month is to, uh, uh, YouTube modeler, uh, uh, Martin Kovac known as uncle light shift. Um, I've learned a lot i've really enjoyed his uh youtube channel and we'll have to do a whole episode on youtube and youtube modeling at some point in the future but uh uh he's done uh, he does mostly armor models or almost exclusively armor models and he switches back between thirty fifth scale and seventy second scale and i have really appreciated his 70 second scale armor videos because you get to see weathering not just in 35th scale, which is is much more common, but getting to see how he takes those same techniques and adapts them to that smaller scale. Uh, I've really enjoyed his stuff. It's it's great to watch, comes out every Friday, and uh I gotta admit it's one of those things that I look forward to, you know, you think, oh, good, it's Friday. I'm going to get another one of these videos.
0: Well, I can second that. I enjoy his stuff, too. And yep. you're right. We do need to do a little bit more on these YouTube channels, the ones yep. we like anyway, and why. Absolutely. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up.
1: Yeah. I think we've gone more than long enough. I'm almost complained out.
0: All right, Dave, until next time. There's so many kits. And so little time. Have a good
1: evening. All man. right. Goodbye. No,